A token is a unit of virtual currency. Most tokens are built on a blockchain-based cryptocurrency platform, such as Ethereum. Building on top of a platform like Ethereum allows these tokens to form their own financial ecosystem, while leveraging the scale of an existing currency. Tokens became highly popular in early 2018 with the boom in ICOs, initial coin offerings. Many of these coins offer a value proposition of a, quote, utility token. The ideal of a utility token is that the token is necessary to transact in a particular ecosystem, so that in order to get a transaction in that ecosystem, you have to buy the token that is necessary for the utility exchange within that ecosystem. So for an example, let's say Amazon decided to create their own token. If Amazon were to require you to transact in their Amazon coins, that would require you to convert U.S. dollars to Amazon coins in order to buy items on Amazon. And the Amazon coin would be the utility token. The utility being you would be able to buy items within the Amazon ecosystem. And there are many different kinds of utility token schemes. Time will tell if this model makes sense for the cryptocurrency investment landscape. How it has been used today is the ICOs get issued and people buy these utility tokens. Today, they don't have any utility, but the promise is that someday the ecosystem that you're buying into will have enough transaction volume and enough network effects to give that token some actual value beyond purely speculative value. Another type of token is the, quote, security token, in which a token represents a share in an organization. And this token type is more like a stock or a bond or a certificate of ownership or of a financial instrument. These types of tokens also have their share of criticism. If I start a company today, most of my assets are not represented on a blockchain. I can't represent them on a blockchain. These are assets like hiring contracts and intellectual property and real estate. The legal ownership of these assets is settled by a complicated legal system, which has no notion of a blockchain. So it's unclear how the claims of a security token today would be enforced, or why a security token is actually a better option for raising capital than traditional equity or debt instruments. So as We've seen the tokens and the models for token issuance are very immature. Philippe Pereira is the author of On the Immaturity of Tokenized Value Capture Mechanisms, which is a Medium article in which Philippe documents different types of token systems, including several flavors of utility tokens and security tokens. He's also a co-founder at a company called Parati. He joins the show to discuss the present viability of token-based systems and what blockchains have actually proven to be useful for. Today, we had a great discussion about the usefulness of blockchains and what's truly been proven to be useful and what is still up for debate. Before we get started, I want to announce that we're hiring a creative operations lead. If you're an excellent communicator and you want to work with us at Software Engineering Daily, Please check out our job posting for Creative Operations at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. This is a great job for someone who just graduated a coding boot camp or someone with a background in the arts who's making their way into tech. If you want to be creative and you want to learn about engineering, check it out at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. Although be aware, you will need a very good work ethic 
and you will need to be reliable in order to get accepted for this job. So if you do not qualify for those things, then do not apply. But otherwise, please do apply. SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com slash jobs. Felipe Pereira is the co-founder of Parati, and he writes on Medium about cryptocurrencies and blockchains. Felipe, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a big pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. <laughs> Thanks for listening. So you wrote this article called On the Immaturity of Tokenized Value Capture Mechanisms. And I thought it was a pretty good explanation of are these different token types valuable? Or is any of this stuff valuable at this point? You really explored the question of value. And that's what I'd like our, our conversation to focus on is, is token types and the nature of what makes something valuable, ultimately. But I kind of want to start with a more contextual question, and a contemporary question. Why even talk about this stuff in, in 2018? Isn't it too early? Haven't we determined at this point that crypto is a big scam? All the ICOs are scams. None of this stuff works at scale. Bitcoin's centralized. Ethereum's all, like almost as centralized. Why are we even talking about this stuff right now? Yeah, we definitely have come to some, I wouldn't say conclusions, but to some clearer thoughts on tokens throughout the past year and this year. And you're completely right when you say that there's a lot of stuff out there that maybe shouldn't even be launched or maybe shouldn't even be tried in the open market. I guess like to be clear, or at least in my mind, there's two big use cases for cryptocurrencies that have been proven. One of them is the uncensurable store of value use case, which is what Bitcoin has been doing for almost 10 years now. That's useful for the world and for society. Like People in a lot of countries that suffer with hyperinflation are actually running to Bitcoin to preserve their wealth and to be able to transfer it to other people around the world. So that's a checkbox there. And then I'd say that the second case that has been working is that of fundraising. So when Ethereum came and people started doing these ICOs all around, it has grown and became sort of a bubble, but it's clear for me that we've moved towards a more scalable maybe model of crowdfunding and a model that allows investors all over the world to invest in projects that they believe in, regardless of their level of accreditedness or uh, level of sophistication as investors. Beyond the store of value and the fundraising use case, I agree with you that it's mostly speculation at this point, especially because networks are still on their very early days. But I do think that among some of the models that have been tried for tokens, which are basically digital assets, I do believe that some of them have a high chance of accruing value and of actually opening up or paving the path for the third and the fourth big use cases for cryptocurrencies, which we haven't seen in scale yet, but I'm hopeful we'll, we'll come to see them next year's. I'm actually going to articulate three more use cases that I think have been proven, and I want to get your feedback on it. So the other three use cases, first, there's the digitization of unique objects on the internet, so, or, or the verifiably unique digital objects. So you can, there are mechanisms, the whole thing that came out of CryptoKitties and why Andreessen Horowitz put a bunch of money into the CryptoKitties founders is because they brought to market the functionality of having a provably unique digital asset. Like if you pick up a sword in a video game, you can now prove that this is the only sword 
that exists. And that's obviously, you know, it's it's being applied to gaming, but it's pretty easy to think about ways in which having a a provably unique digital asset could be valuable. The other thing that I think is interesting is the idea of the blockchain is a distributed consensus mechanism. And that is novel, even just as a computer science concept that we don't maybe even have a widespread use case for yet, unless you you know count the, the things that you just enumerated already. Even if you just look at it as a fundamental computer science concept, that is a breakthrough. And that is a tool in the computer scientist's toolkit. The third thing that, that you didn't mention that I think also has not been proven, but is sort of proven, is the digitization of the contract. You know, right now, the my digital contract experience is I get a PDF in an email from a lawyer or from, you know, somebody I'm making a deal with. And it's like, is a PDF really the way that we want to describe, you know, something that should be well-formed and well-documented? And I think, the you know, the idea of a smart contract where you have a digital, rule-based, unambiguous contract, that is another potential breakthrough that actually depends on the same things that the value that you know, the uncensorability and the distributed consensus mechanisms, the sort of the things in the purposes one through four of crypto. So I think I want to hear your feedback on that. But if you agree with those, that's five use cases for blockchain related technologies. Yeah, I would say I completely agree that they are use cases. I wouldn't agree that they are proven yet, I guess mostly because we haven't seen growth in user bases. Like even for CryptoKitties, I'm not sure of the data exactly, but I would suppose or guess that if you go to, to analytics sites and check how many daily users are actually exchanging kitties or playing with them, even if you count all the applications built on top of the original CryptoKitties, I wouldn't say there's more than a thousand people every day around the world playing with it. Of course, it's still early and these investors are all making bets. And I'm also bullish on the digitization of of property, basically, not only in the case of collectibles and games, but also in the case of property, real estate, and many other cases. When it comes to decentralized consensus, yeah, that's a big breakthrough, I guess. And we've seen, we've witnessed the birth of new families of protocols, which try to tackle the issue in different manners than Satoshi did in the beginning. And we're starting to see a lot of trade-offs become more clear and clear in the sense that we can be or we can build protocols as decentralized as we want in the sense that we will have to pay off some security or some scalability to reach that decentralization. And we can balance this trade-off in multiple ways. So I agree that that's a powerful new concept in the computer scientist toolbox. And when it comes to contracts, that's, I guess, the most delicate thing. I don't really... Personally, I don't have many problems with signing stuff on PDFs, uh, although I'd like them to be, I don't know, more automatable or maybe more easy to use, or I don't know. But when it comes to to smart contracts in Ethereum or any other platform, uh, first, we don't really have unambiguous contracts yet. I mean, stuff happens as as the code determines determines it should happen. But in the end of the day, we're talking people making interpretations of things. And even in cases where contracts work exactly as they should have, like in the case of the Ethereum DAO, the DAO, people might just gather and say, hey, actually what we wanted was not exactly that. So we're still not at the point on which we can have like a truly code is law constitution, even for small communities, I guess. But of course, I'm a fan of the possibility of 
signing a contract with people anywhere in the world, making automated escrows, and making value programmable like when it comes to contracts specifically, I always like to cite a very simple example that I've, I've seen one of these days, which is a very simple contract for friends that are SVPing into a party. So say you are a guy and you're bringing a lot of people to your house, you invite 20 people, everyone are SVPs to this party, and everyone puts like one Ether or one small token in this contract. And then when people come to your house, they just check in in your cell phone, prove that they're there, and they get their token back. And if you have friends who are not good enough or close to your heart enough and that don't show up in your house, everyone that showed up is going to get a little piece of the token that this guy who confirmed they did show up <laughs> actually is losing. So that's very simple, almost dumb, but it shows a novel coordination mechanism, you know, and I think that's where the power of contracts lie. I love that example. I hadn't heard that one before, but that's a really good, simple example. Because it's like you need to put up some resources just to like put together a party, hire a DJ, buy some chips and dip, buy some pizza. And, you know, if the party organizer organizes a party for 50 people who confirm on Facebook and those 50 people have no skin in the game, you know, maybe you only get 15 people and you've ordered way too much pizza, you've hired a DJ for 15 people, and you don't have enough people to have a good dance party. So this kind of escrow mechanism serves a great purpose. Of course, you know, that's... Well, and, and then I guess you just, the value comes from describing it in a contract. It's sort of a... Like, you could do this through Venmo, but because it's it's a well-formed, but yet, yet kind of strange transaction mechanism it might be made easier by just having you know the system where people just check in and, and you have this automated value transfer that occurs upon the check-in so it's, it does seem like this this does seem like a good example of something where the difference between using the party you know the the contract for the the house party is significantly simpler than just using Venmo or PayPal or whatever other centralized payment mechanism. Yeah, and these are the cases we should be looking at, I guess. But kind of circling back to the three examples you brought, uh, digitization of objects and decentralized consensus and contracts themselves, just kind of going back to the token side of things, I don't, I'm not convinced that any of these three like inherently need a token to work, either digitization of objects or running contracts, which you can do on existing platforms, or even decentralized consensus, which you can also piggyback on Ethereum or other platforms. That's kind of what I wanted to mean when I said that surely these are big use cases, but maybe not for tokens, you know? And just to go a little bit deeper on what you said about, like, the PDF contract versus the digital contract, the value of the PDF contract is, in some sense, the ambiguity. Humans, we don't want to enumerate every edge case. And so if you have a, a complex contract you're trying to draw up, it may be worth it to leave some ambiguity in the contract, whereas a digital contract, a blockchain-based contract, has no ambiguity. It's, ex it's extremely explicit. And I think in crypto, you actually see this, this tension between ambiguity and specificity explored, you know, not just at this kind of PDF versus digital contract level, but you also see it in the the governance level where you have you know some people who are fans of completely uh, the on-chain governance model where everything is laid out specifically on-chain and then you have kind of the counter the other political side of it that says you know this is too complicated right it's, it's too ambiguous we don't know how to build a blockchain and therefore we shouldn't have governance 
be this on-chain model. I, I didn't plan to discuss this with you, but maybe could you talk about the on-chain governance versus off-chain governance? Am I capturing the two sides of that debate correctly? Yeah, I guess so. I think you pinned down things when you said that digital contracts leave less room for ambiguity. But you're right when you mentioned that on higher levels, like when it comes to governance and to the people governing these networks, there's a lot of ambiguity, actually, and there are some bad intentions in sometimes in misinforming people. And why do I say that? This whole movement began in, well, I mean, the crypto movement began in 2018 or 20, 2009 with Bitcoin. And it was really pushed by the wish of Satoshi or by the desire of this community to create an alternative to the financial system that was completely open and completely decentralized and completely uncensorable. So it made sense to pursue like fully-fledged decentralization in that case. But for a lot of other use cases where blockchains or cryptocurrencies might be useful or helpful, you don't actually need 100% decentralization in a network in order to, to make it more valuable than the traditional alternatives. For example... The peer-to-peer file sharing history is full of examples of networks that tried to be more or less decentralized and that played a lot in this trade-off between scalability and decentralization and security. And in the end of the day, I kind of had the feeling that users always flocked to the systems that were the less decentralized possible, which is kind of a lesson to us. Like when you look at the evolution of Napster, Freenet, Torrents and everything, you don't need to be fully decentralized as you need to provide an experience that's better than the one that your users had before and also give them more value. So I think that the key here is actually on value. And on public blockchains today, you see a lot of, of this discussion going on. Like we see Ethereum striving to be as decentralized as it can, but with a caveat that it still relies on a very influential leader. Then we see other chains that are paying off in decentralization from day one in order to achieve higher scalability, for example, EOS. And it's all still a big question mark. Like, we're not sure yet which applications will actually require the level of decentralization that Ethereum aims to provide. And I'm not sure of which applications are actually going to work fine with the level of decentralization that EOS is going to provide. So I think that more important than trying to get things black on white or right or wrong is to actually understand the subtleties in these trade-offs and to examine case by case, you know? Yeah, and one other thing before we get to your your article, I guess we're in a time where everything is political, but I have just been surprised by the politics of... There are people who will just be completely dismissive of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. Still, even still, like I got an email yesterday, and I'm not, I don't mean to be throwing this listener under the bus because I've gotten other emails from listeners like this who are like, why are you covering this technology. And it's like there's a active resistance for people accepting that this is potentially useful technology or proven useful technology. I think it's proven that it is useful at this point. You know, obviously, you know, we've talked about uncensorable cryptocurrency. You know, that was like kind of the first thing you mentioned when in fact it is kind of censorable because a 51% attack could be conducted by Bitmain today. But even if you just consider it kind of a prototype, uh, it's a very successful prototype today. It's, a, it's an extremely successful prototype. You know, I see people emailing me. You also see people like Vint Cerf. I saw Vint Cerf tweet 
this slide, you know, it was, it was him presenting something, and there was a slide that he was presenting that was one of these sort of sarcastic flowcharts where you have just two things in the flowchart, two places in the flowchart, and an arrow from the first one to the second one. And the first one is, do you need a blockchain? And there's an arrow pointing to the next place in the flowchart and says no. So the idea being, you never need a blockchain for anything. And maybe that's true today. Maybe we don't really need a blockchain for anything today. Like you could build, if we just cloned what Bitcoin is in actuality, and it was on AWS instead of on Bitmain's servers, you know, that would be, we would probably be thinking that of that as, as more centralized, even though that would just basically be the same thing rebranded. But like the, the thing is, I just, I just think like the optics there specifically, like Vintsurf works at Google. And I think this would be like if, if Microsoft, 1995, it was earlier than 1999, because I think in 1999, the open internet was proven, but like 1995, you know, things like MSN and AOL were still sort of like, oh, this is the internet, like we're using the internet. But it would be like if, if Microsoft or AOL in 1995 would have said, do you need the open internet? No. Like if they would have presented that kind of flowchart. And it's really surprising to me how dismissive this attitude is like from not just the people emailing me because they're unfamiliar with blockchains and and you know they're like why is this important but somebody like Vint Cerf I think Vint Cerf has won I don't know if he's won a Turing award but like he I think he invented TCP/IP so like but maybe he's smarter than I am and, and I'm completely wrong but I just I am surprised by the politics and and sort of the dismissiveness of you know in this case a complete incumbent. I know. I know. Vin Cerf is sort of like a you know an, a researcher kind of guy that is just sort of like probably gets a great salary to hang out at Google, but he basically gets to operate as a researcher. He probably doesn't really feel like he is a Googler. But even just the optics there of like you don't need a blockchain for anything when blockchains are in the most grandiose sense of the vision potentially disruptive to a business like Google. Yeah, you know what's curious? I met Vint like two years ago in a conference and I sent a question to his panel on blockchains. Like, what are you guys at, doing, at Google doing in respect to this technology? What's your vision in relation to it? And so on. And he gave an answer pretty much along this the same lines of this slide, <laughs> pretty radical. So not much have changed in the, the past two years for, for him, I guess. And I, of course, respect him a lot. He and Bob can invented the TCPIP protocols. And he's right when he says that you don't probably need a blockchain for most use cases when it comes to teams developing something together today. The fact is that this is still a big research and development experiment, just like TCPIP spawned a lot of research and experimentation with the internet back then. And yes, we have some proven use cases. And I think that part of this missive attitude from these guys comes from the fact that the ecosystem is still very, very much unregulated and very, very much heterogeneous. So on one side, you have teams that are super, super full of integrity, developing cutting edge, very useful technology for privacy preservation, for example. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have these huge teams from crazy places around the world, raising big amounts of money to actually deliver products that either don't work or are not useful or are just not comprehensible or not needed now. So we're still finding our north here when it comes to research and development. And when it comes to decentralized applications, which are another thing we can come to talk afterwards, we still didn't have our iPhone moment. So we still didn't have this moment on which a certain application clicked for critical mass of users and then that 
achieved a tipping point and started to generate enough network effects to grow and maintain itself. So we're still looking for that. And it might happen in some different forms. I have some ideas. But until that happens and this whole energy that's being dedicated to research actually concentrates on the one, two or three paths that, yeah, we're seeing that provide clear value, uh, I think that that dismissive attitude is going to, to be less radical, be less aggressive uh, and so on. But it's just as possible that in three, four or five years, we're actually not talking about blockchains or cryptocurrencies that broadly anymore and are actually restricting our talks to this one, two or three use cases that actually matter. And then maybe the attacks and dismissive attitudes will will be less common, I hope. The potential for an iPhone moment, you said you had some ideas in mind of what might lead to the, quote, iPhone moment. What are those applications that you see as potential iPhone moments? Yeah, I like to think a lot about user-generated work. So the web showed us that we can reward user-generated content, but we are all aware that users on social media or every other kinds of social networks are doing lots of work for the maintainers of these networks in the sense that they provide activities that these networks monetize by themselves and not necessarily reward the users. So I think that social applications that somehow incorporate prediction markets or some easier way for users to provide this work and be rewarded for it according to how much value they're providing, I think this can be one one killer application in the in the near future. Like, for example, a Tinder for just analyzing stuff you receive on your feed. And if you're good at predicting what other people will like, you're going to get rewarded daily or something along these lines. I think there's potential in this. and I'm, no, That's a great idea. Yeah, and I'm also a big believer on, on digital assets and, and crypto collectibles. Maybe not in the way that they're mar- being marketed today because we're still in the early days again. But I do believe in the potential of a world of games where you can take assets from one game and bring that to another game or sell a sword from one game, as you mentioned, to a player that is actually going to build something completely different with that sword on another game, and so on. There are already projects that are doing some really interesting work on crypto composables, which is like the idea that you can get these sorts of items, these sorts of assets, and combine them to create something that's novable and scarce as well. Uh, And if you can apply that to an ecosystem that's not tied to a single game, I think we're going to see some really amazing narratives in that sense. I love the idea of the Tinder for content. Have you seen anybody that's that's working on... I mean, I've seen so many vaporware prediction markets and vaporware Facebook for crypto things. But I mean, that seems like something that could just exist today or somebody could build that. If I understand your example correctly, the, the idea would be like uh, that you have people who are sort of the curators and they're just swiping left or swiping right on is this content valuable? And then you need some kind of reward mechanism. I guess you could you could do something where people that actually end up reading that content, if they indicate that it's valuable, either by reading that piece of content and spending enough engagement on the page or by upvoting it or something, then they could reward the people who swiped right on that piece of content Actually, even just talking about it, I'm like, this is actually pretty complicated. So maybe <laughs> yes, that's why it doesn't, doesn't exist. exist. You're right. It's not that simple. And subjective. <laughs> and it's ultimately subjective and probably subject to to uh, bot traffic and, and gaming the system. And so it's probably that's probably why it doesn't exist. Yeah, you're right. It's not that simple. Like the first prediction market just went live on Ethereum or the first prediction market on Ethereum, which is Augur. 
And it, it's supposed to be a very simple prediction market where you just post a question and people bet on outcomes for it. And it's already complicated enough. And when you put UX on top of that, it gets more complicated. And when you get the synchronization times you need to actually make the program work well, it gets even more complicated. So yeah, there's really, really a large path between a great idea and a great product in this space. There's really a large amount of craftsmanship that's needed to cross this chasm. And of course, having better infrastructure is what we need to be able to experiment more freely in the application layer of things. So while Ethereum is not scalable, how are we going to be able to think of an app where people can just swipe right or left and make quick transactions or stakes or whatever like that? That's not going to happen today unless we're willing to pay off some decentralization and to move towards other pieces of infrastructure that can actually provide decent enough UX or more scalability at this point. But yeah, just to to wrap up discussion on this, there was an app that I really liked that was called Hyper. I think it doesn't exist anymore, but it just gave me like 10 amazing videos per day. And I just told the app if I liked them or not, short videos. And then on the other day, it gave me more 10 videos. And that was it. Like I just watched it on the toilet in the morning, swiped left, swiped right. And I always kept thinking like, wow, these guys are making recommendations out of this stuff that I'm telling them. These guys are using this to show to other people and to potentially earn money somehow. What if I could earn some of that back? And of course, when you abstract all this stuff, all the complexity away, that could come to be just an app with a wallet where you choose if you like or dislike stuff. And then you get, in the end of the day, a message telling you how much money you made because of the recommendations. But again, you need a lot of infrastructure and we're still developing this infrastructure. Okay, I didn't plan this, but to get into some of the discussion of, of the tokenized value capture mechanism. So you you mentioned Augur. So prediction markets, it's just built with an ERC-20 token. It's It's a tokenized prediction market. Yeah, so Augur has a dual token model, if I'm not mistaken. There is one token which you use to, generally speaking, and I'm not completely sure of this, but there's one token which you use to stake so that you can like provide some attestation work to the network. And there's other token which is more like means of payment token. So it's a dual token model. And the model is called or has been called that of a work token because you have to stake one token so that you can provide some sort of work. And then if you provide this work well, you get more tokens back from inflation generally. And if if you provide the work badly, or if you do bad work, or if you try to cheat, this stake that you made is slashed. So this is like the general idea behind this model, in the sense that if you're providing work to the network, you have to stake some tokens. So the velocity of the tokens is pushed down, and then you always have that skin in the game, and you're incentivized to provide the right work. So that's kind of how the general idea goes. This space is very immature. Like Just like the title of the article I wrote you mentioned, these token models are very immature. And for most cases, we're not even sure if they're needed, after all. So... In the four or three years that took Augur from their ICO back then to launch, now they probably have come to conclusions that they didn't have back then, but they are already committed to all those investors. They have sold tokens to a lot of people, so they just have to push things in the way that they are. And I think it all comes back to the fact that, again, as I was saying in the beginning, for a lot of networks, a token is actually not needed. And there's a lot of space for playing with crypto economics, for playing with incentives and doing all this stuff without a token in many cases. And when there is a token, there's kind of a strange duality to it because participants who are 
like hosting nodes in a network and providing services to it and actually reaping profits of it, earning in tokens, they're interested in seeing this token increasing value because then they're going to earn more for their work. But participants who are actually buying this service from the network are actually looking for a service that's cheaper than decentralized alternative. So they're actually looking for a token that's as cheap as possible. So there's kind of a strange duality there. And when you put in investors and founders that are, of course, looking to the appreciation of the token, but also to keeping a network that's healthy and that can provide services relatively low cost, it's a mess, you know? Tokens are, they come out really as speculative assets that are freely traded in a liquid market where everyone can participate, where their utility is not there yet. But the point is, if we commit to tokens early enough and then sometime ahead, we just realized that they were needed, what to do, you know? Are you going to kill this piece of equity that you've sold investors or are you going to push forward and try to iterate things and kind of like fix the Frankenstein product as you go on? It's a very, very delicate thing because to exist in the first moment, most of these teams have to sell tokens or have to sell something to investors. So they are just propelled to sell what everyone else is selling. And my call here, what I would like to, to leave as a message is consider a lot whether you actually need a token or not, if you are creating one or if you are planning on investing or using one, because some of the times you don't need that. And if you come to realize that later on and that's too late, you might be in trouble. Algor claims to, to do infrastructure for prediction markets, but they've put a lot of work on their front end and on their actual product, like the software that people are downloading. There are some other projects where, which are really focused on infrastructure and which like the average people or the end user might not notice that much about. But some of them are doing amazing work when it comes to token design and to actually providing a decent service that can be cheaper or better than in the past days. One example is Livepeer. So Livepeer is building a network of video transcoding nodes. So when you look at the, the pipeline to publish video on a self-publishing platform or whichever online platform, Video processing, which means like getting the original raw file and adapting its bitrate, size, format so that it can play well on every device and connection. Like this work is super expensive for yeah. like, well, it's, it's a lot of the cost that YouTube incurs and that Vimeo incurs and other platforms incurs. And most of this work is outsourced to Amazon nowadays, actually. And of course, this work is done by GPUs, mostly. And GPUs are also being used to mine cryptocurrencies in a lot of places, in Asia and so on. And there's a lot of research pointing towards the fact that if you get these GPUs, you can kind of leave them mining whichever cryptocurrencies you want and actually use their encoding and decoding chips with a very small increment in energy consumption in a way that you can do a lot of transcoding while you are still mining with this GPU. So this is not something a normal end user would do, but Bitmain manager in China would probably be able to set this up. And what does that mean? Well, that if you get a lot of people or a lot of machines providing this transcoding service, we can actually have a public transcoding network that's way cheaper than the service that AWS provides. And in a way that YouTube, Vimeo, or whoever incumbent players can use it to cheapen their costs, but also people who are building decentralized or semi-decentralized applications can use in order to, to, to access this cheaper and uncensorable, to say so, service. So these guys have been doing a pretty amazing work at research, development, and implementation. And in a little bit over the, a year, they went from like 
the first prototypes to the mainnet and the protocol is running on the mainnet now there's like 10 transcoders shuffling work around and 20 candidates for transcoders like waiting in line to do so the network's growing not many people are talking about it they have a token that follows kind of a similar model than that of augur a little bit more simple they're not being traded in any exchanges or anything like no shilling no pump and dumps and it's working so this is the kind of thing i'm excited about following lately Okay, that's a fascinating example, and it's, I mean, we just did a show about transcoding and how hard this problem is, actually, because when somebody uploads a video, if you want to deliver that video to all these different surfaces, like if you want to deliver it to a smartphone on a shaky connection, but you also want to be able to deliver it in high fidelity to somebody who's sitting on a T1 connection in their, you know, nice apartment you actually have to transcode it in multiple ways, meaning you have to compress it using different bitrate trade-off algorithms. And so there's a huge spectrum when you consider the uh, the different types of connectivity, the different types of phones people can be on, the different types of computers people can be on. You actually create this bitrate ladder, which is all of these different versions of the video that get delivered to the consumer. So this is just a lot of processing power that goes into that. So, so I could actually, this seems like something that, that could work, could make sense for it to be on the blockchain in order to decentralize it and make it cheaper and to make it a, a cloud service that uh, somebody like Bitmain could provide. But to the token point, you know, the example you gave earlier with the house party, where we, we were able to enumerate an actual purpose for a smart contract, you know, the thing is, in that house party example, you don't need a token. All you need is Ether, right? You just need a contract that exchanges Ether. And it makes me a little bit suspicious of the whole utility token model, because if you just had a transcoding type of system built with smart contracts that used Ethereum or that used Ether instead of using this token, then there's no reason why you would need this token based network that you gave in the example of live peer although i'll admit that the token is a nice way to bootstrap the network and raise some money for these guys and girls that are hacking on live peer and making it work cool that's great let's let's remunerate them for their efforts but unfortunately if it works somebody can just clone it to a contract based system that's that's just uses ether and doesn't use their token that only has one specific purpose I, I mean doesn't that seem like a counter argument against even a token for this live peer purpose it kind of does and i agree with you that tokens are first and foremost a great bootstrapping mechanism there's the issue that like if you have providers on one side and consumers on one side and consumers just go away or just just come down from a peak activity and there's very few consumers and you've grown to a large amount of providers and they're not going to be earning money because there's less consumers now block rewards or inflation can like help maintain the network in that sense so inflation is one reason like having the control over monetary policy of a given supply is one reason to have uh, a known token and that can be good that can be bad that can be well done or bad done i'm not going to get into that merit but I guess it's one of the reasons. And of course, serving as a way to remunerate the teams that make these things is probably the biggest reason why we're seeing that many tokens out there today, to be very frank with you. But 
just like when you say that anyone can fork the thing and just build a mirrored system that works without a token, I guess that's the beauty of it. Like at any time, anyone can just fork the live peer network and build a clone of it. And I bet that in one or two months, the original project is already going to be way farther ahead than the clone because they just keep developing and delivering stuff because they hold the token and because they are incentivized to actually keep working for the network so that more people are going to use it so that more tokens are going to circle around and so that the tokens is going to increase in value so tokens are really good means of keeping a community together and making them work towards the same goal and yes sometimes you don't need them but sometimes that can be very effective two very quick examples one of them is bitcoin itself which well the discussion of whether to have a token or not doesn't even apply here but it illustrates the, the feedback look that I'm talking about really well in the sense that Bitcoin pays off rewards to people who help secure the network by mining. It pays off these rewards in Bitcoin, which is its unit of account. The more people securing the network, providing work to it, the more robust the network gets, the more useful it gets, the more pe people tend to use it, the more people tend to demand Bitcoins. So the value of Bitcoins tend to increase. When the value of Bitcoin increase, the value of the rewards that the network's paying to these miners or to these workers actually increase since Bitcoin is its unit of account. So you have this feedback loop where everyone is willing to provide more work, to reap more value and to grow the network as a whole, which is possible because they are all around this very same asset. So this is an example of this feedback loop I'm trying to illustrate. And another example is that of Zcash, which I think is a fascinating example because Zcash has one of the most brilliant teams of cryptographers in this space like real cryptographers, not just the crypto part of it. And Zcash has a big founder reward, meaning that at every block that comes to the Zcash blockchain, a share of the new Zcash that's being issued there goes to the founding team, goes to Zuku, which is one of the founders, and so on. And recently, I've seen this data that shows that Zuko, Zcash's founder, earns like $4 million a year per this founder rewards. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of incentive right. for, for someone to just go there and fork this network and say, hey, this is Zcash without the founder's rewards. And people have done this twice. One of these forks died. The other was actually converted into another fork afterwards that reintroduced the founder rewards. And Zcash is still developing cutting-edge technology. And I bet that most of its users who are conscious about this are just fine with the fact that Zuko and his team are earning money because they're yeah actually at the forefront of, of privacy-preserving cryptography. So trade-offs, we have to balance them. Totally. It makes me think of... I think there is validity in the point that you raise about, hey, a token is a way of, of keeping a community together. Just, just like, you know, yes, you could fork this, but you're going to get, you know, your, the utility keeps sub-projects together, just like equity keeps a company together. I'm sorry, not the utility. The token keeps people together, whether it's considered a, a utility token or a, or perhaps a security token. Maybe we could get into that in a sec. But you know, it could just be used to keep people together. And you know, in that sense, it's, it's very similar to the centralized company model. So actually, yeah, let, let's get into that. So this idea of the utility token versus the equity token or the security token, I think, as it's often called. So utility token, you know, we can we can sort of say, okay, utility token would certainly make sense in the sense of in the context of, of live peer or in the context of Zcash, where the additional utility that you're getting, you're getting privacy by using Zcash. You're getting 
video transcoding because you're willing to transact within this token. You're willing to exchange your highly fungible currency for this utility token in order to play within the this network that's providing some utility that you want, which kind of makes sense, especially in the context of uh, what you just, just brought up, like the tokenization of it keeps people together. Of course, the security token side of things is that you somehow replicate the model that we have with companies where the shares in the company are represented by shares of stock and you replicate that by saying okay we're going to have some perpetual valuation mechanism over this network or maybe it's just a public valuation mechanism and the security token represents some percentage of shares in that network so give me your your perspective on the contrast between utility tokens and security tokens do both of them make sense? Is there a purpose to have a, a security token and a purpose to have a utility token? Are there different networks that make sense for these different kinds of things? Yeah, I guess both have their own merits. I sincerely can't keep track of the changes in taxonomies because every new day it's new words to describe these kinds of tokens. The way I like <laughs> although, to think- Although I'll just say you did your best to lay out all of these different ones in your article. And I thought that, that was, was pretty useful. You laid out like 50 different subclasses of utility tokens. I appreciate that. And I was really happy to see that some VC funds have actually leveraged that diagram and actually built on it. There's new analysis and so on. But anyway, the way I like to think of it is that there's basically two types of tokens or two types of crypto assets. First is assets that represent something else. Second is assets or are assets that have value by themselves. So security tokens are nothing more than tokens that are just there to represent something else, that uh, they're not useful by themselves, but only when you count this something else. So a security token can be land property title. A security token can be a piece of equity in a token. A security token can be the ownership of an artwork or anything like this, where Whereas if you take out this other thing, the token is useless by itself. And a utility token on the other side, which then opens up the way for some of these models we've been discussing, are tokens that can buy you services on specific networks and that can follow specific dynamics and that can accrue value in different ways. I do believe there's a huge market for security tokens. And the reason for that is that the securities market worldwide is worth, uh, I don't know, $70 trillion or something like that. And the whole cryptocurrencies market today is worth less than half a trillion, if I'm not mistaken. So what I'm trying to say here is that when you look at the way that stock exchanges operate and that equity is issued and all the processes that companies have to go through in order to fill themselves publicly and to fundraise legally and all this stuff, it becomes just so much easier when you can issue tokens that represent equity, for instance, on a public blockchain. And of course, we still have to regulate that process. We still have a lot to regulate when it comes to, to sharing royalties or revenue and stuff like that. But it's just so much easier than the, the processes that are currently in place. You have global liquidity. You have fractional ownership, meaning that you can have much more people owning stuff like you can sell the Mona Lisa not to a rich collector, but rather to the whole country of Argentina if they're willing to pay for it via tax. I don't know. There's just so many possibilities that are opened up by this. So yes, I think there's a huge opportunity for security tokens and all the smart people I talk to and the smart people I live with, uh, they believe this year and the next year are going to, to represent a boom for these kinds of tokens as more and more exchanges and stock exchanges start to look into this 
and as regulation starts to, to settle down. And then as for utility tokens, as we were speaking, there's these kinds of models that have been tried so far. Some of them are being proven to work. Some of them are being proven to work less. And it's a huge research development experimentation field. And we have to be aware that 99% of these utility tokens will be dead in four or five years from now. But the 1% that survives, I think, is going to cause enough change and enough impact in the sense of coordinating networks in novel ways, but enough change and enough impact so that it's worth pursuing them and it's worth failing a hundred times to find them. I agree with you. Well, Felipe, it's been really great talking to you. We didn't really get into as much of your article as I anticipated, but I think we covered uh, a lot of the same questions that you were exploring there, just kind of in a roundabout way. Do you have any closing thoughts or, or things that we didn't get to discuss that you want to mention? Yeah, I'd probably like to leave the message that please don't dismiss this whole market and don't take it as just some useless work that's being done by a lot of crazy or greedy people out there because there's really a lot of integer people giving their best to find this 1% of use cases that are actually going to enable really novel forms of value capture and value creating uh, in the internet. So don't dismiss this. Try to research as much as you can. Try to get better at discerning what's well-intended from what's bad-intended. And join the party. Like Everyone in the community is pretty much open. Research happens in open grounds, open channels. So we're all learning together and we're all trying to be as humble and as frank as we can and as fast in researching, developing and shipping stuff as we can. And we need talent and we need more people to, to join the community and help us push this forward. So that, I guess, is my, my closing thought. Okay. Well, Felipe, it's been really great talking to you. Amazing. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Wow.